0: And we are turning to 2 Samuel, not 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel chapter 6 is where we're going to be as we have um, taken a rather large leap in the scriptures uh, from where we were looking at uh, particularly 1 Samuel chapter uh, 24 to now looking at 2 Samuel chapter 6. And so to bring you just real briefly up to date as to what has transpired between 1 Samuel chapter 24 and... And 2 Samuel chapter 6 is, at the end of 1 Samuel, uh, Saul is continuing to pursue David, but then Saul, in a battle against the Philistines, both Saul and Jonathan die. And this then opens up, now the Lord's anointed, Saul has been set aside, God's judgment has been brought about upon him, and yet Jonathan dies as well. And this opens up a brief civil war within Israel, a civil war that ensues between the remnants of Saul's family and the follower of Saul's followers of Saul's family and the followers of David and his family. And we see that little bit of a civil war in the early part of 2 Samuel, in which David and his men defeat Saul's uh, family and his followers, in particular the the leader of that army, of Saul's army, which is a guy named Abner. And we see that the kingdom begins to coalesce around David. David is then, we see, uh, is named King over Israel. He is now reigns over all of Israel and Judah. And he is then immediately after that, David uh, creates a place for him to live. See, Jerusalem had not been in the hands of the Israelites. And so, what we see in 2 Samuel chapter 5 is that David goes to war and, and, and wins for himself a, a capital city, a, a, a city for his reign, his rule in Jerusalem. And it will be known as the city of David from there on out. And this was under the control of the Jebusites, and so David makes war against them. And then as soon as he begins to settle in, the Philistines come out to attack David as well. And David, as we've seen throughout 1 Samuel, the the Philistines have been the kind of the great nemesis in the side of the Israelites for many, many hundreds of years. And David is immediately faced with an attack by the Philistines, but he puts an end to them. He subdues these long-term enemies of Israel. He wins peace for Israel in many ways in 2 Samuel chapter 5. And now what we see in Second Samuel chapter six is where we come this morning. David is now reigning and ruling. A life is, appears to be good, there is fairly peace. And now in a season of peace, David must take on a role in the matter of kingship of Israel that it goes beyond simply being the man who protects Israel from their enemies. It goes beyond simply coalescing and the, the, the strength and the power of the kingdom around his ruling and leadership. But it takes on another role of the king of Israel, which is to be the lead worshiper. David is to be the lead worshiper. The king of Israel is a servant of God who is supposed to lead God's people in the service of God, in particular, in worshiping. And so David is the, is the great archetype of the lead worshiping king. The one who will write songs and poems and poetry, hundreds of songs over the course of his lifetime that he will use to lead Israel in worship. And so that's where we come in 2 Samuel chapter 6. Read along in your own Bibles as I read out loud, as I'm going to read the whole chapter, all 23 verses, beginning in verse 1. And David again gathered all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000. And David arose and went with all the people who were with him from Baal, Judah, to bring up from there the ark of God which is called by the name of the Lord of hosts, who sits enthroned on the cherubim. And they carried the ark of God on a new cart and brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. And Uzzah and Ahio, the sons of Abinadab, were driving the new cart with the ark of God, and Ahio went before the ark. And David and all the house of Israel were celebrating before the Lord with songs and lyres and harps and tambourines and castanets and cymbals. And when they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah put his hand out to the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen stumbled. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and God struck him down there because of his error. And he died there beside the ark of God. And David was angry because the Lord had broken out against Uzzah. And the place is called Perez-Uzzah to this day. And David was afraid of the Lord that day. And he said, how can the ark of the Lord come to me? So David was not willing to take the ark of the Lord into the city of David. But David instead took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite. And the ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite, three months. And the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all his household. And it was told King David, The Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and all that belongs to him because of the ark of God. So David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. And when those who bore the ark of the Lord had gone six steps, he sacrificed an ox and a fattened animal. And David danced before the Lord with all his might, and David was wearing a linen ephod. So David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of the horn. As the ark of the Lord came into the city of David, Michael, the daughter of Saul, looked out at the window, and saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, and she despised him in her heart. And they brought in the ark of the Lord and set it in its place, inside the tent that David had pitched for it. And David offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. And when David had finished offering the burnt offerings and the peace offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord of hosts and distributed among all the people the whole multitude of Israel, both men and women, a cake of bread, a portion of meat, and a cake of raisins to each one. Then all the people departed, each to his house. And David returned to bless his household. But Michael, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet David and said, "'How the king of Israel honored himself today!' Uncovering himself today before the eyes of his servants. How the and female servants, as one of the vulgar fellows, shamelessly uncovers himself. And David said to Michael, It was before the Lord who chose me above your father and above all his house to appoint me as prince over Israel, the people of the Lord, and I will celebrate before the Lord. I will make myself yet more contemptible than this, or undignified. And I will abase, be abased in your eyes." But by the female servants of whom you have spoken, by them I shall be held in honor. And Michael, the daughter of Saul, had no child to the day of her death. This sends the reading of God's holy and errant and infallible word. May the grass with her and the flower fade, but the word of our God. And it stand forever. Well, David paints a picture here at the end of this text that is fairly famous, particular in as people have discussed worship and what is appropriate and right in worship. And in many ways, if we look at this as David is dancing and leaping and shouting, it says he is dancing with all of his might. When you dance with all of your might, that is not something that you make up. Dancing with all the might is, is the kind of dancing you may have done at a wedding once in a while. It only happens occasionally where you get off the dance floor and you are just sopping wet with sweat, in which your tie is off to the side, or perhaps it's tied on your head and your shirt is untucked. That is the kind of joy that David has been experiencing. And there are, for, for some of us, and perhaps many of you, you've experienced this that you've looked at this kind of joy in worship. And whether it be by personality, or simply by stage in life, you've said, I wish I could experience worship like that again. I'm a wallflower by personality, and it would be amazing to experience that level of joy. To have gone to the place where I lose my, my, my sense of everyone else being around me, and I simply dance before the Lord with before an audience of one. I would love to have that kind of worship for some of us, we've experienced this in our Christian life, that when you first became a believer, you loved coming to corporate worship. You loved going to conferences and you loved the singing. For you, perhaps the greatest part, or the most exciting part, the time in which you felt most close to God, the most joy in your Christian life was then during corporate worship, during the singing of praises, and when you felt God's affection, you felt affection for Him, you felt His closest. But now, perhaps, your worship has become stale and cold. It has become rote. It has become old. For you love you used to love praising the Lord. You loved corporate worship. You loved exuberant worship. But now it's kind of like we're just going through the motions. We're doing this thing. It doesn't matter how exuberant the worship is around me. I just find myself either faking it or just kind of sitting back and being a wallflower. See, if for any number of reasons, whether it's because we have lost our first love, maybe it's because we never learned how to worship in the first place, we must learn, or perhaps for some of us relearn, to worship the Lord. And this is actually what is happening in our text today. David is learning how to worship. David is learning how to worship. Yes, David. David. David the writer of so many of our psalms and our songs. He must learn to worship the Lord. Even David, the court musician and the poet, David must be taught how to worship. David, the one who will lead all of Israel in the worship of God over and over again, must now, as he becomes king, and as he he becomes the worship leader of Israel, must learn what it is to worship. David needed such a lesson. And if David needed such a lesson, the writer of the psalms, how much more, you and I. So when I want to look this morning of how you become a joyous worshipper like David. You become a joyous worshipper. I'm going to look at four things this morning. Four points. You become a joyous worshipper. I'm sorry, three points. You become a joyous worshipper first and foremost as you seek the presence of the Lord. We see this in the first couple of verses. We see it in in David's pursuit of the Ark, his longing to have the Ark near him and have it in Jerusalem with him. Now, we need some explanation about the Ark, because for, for some of us, the Ark of the Covenant, our greatest understanding of the Ark of the Covenant comes from a guy named Indiana. We don't actually understand the Ark, and so we need to take a little more careful look at what it is. The Ark was about three and three quarters in length. It was two and a quarter in width and in depth. It was not a very large box. But what the, what the ark represented before the people of God is nothing less than the very presence of God. The whole tabernacle that they God had them built, the temple, that the, the mobile temple that they used in the wilderness as they wandered around and as they got settled into Israel was built around the ark of the covenants. For in the ark of the covenant, it represents God's very presence. It had two cherubim on top of it, and in the middle of it was called the mercy seat of God made up of the wings of the cherubim. And we can see this is articulated as to how how closely God's people and God himself viewed God's presence and connection with the Ark of the Covenant. In Numbers chapter 10, verse 35 and 36, Moses is talking about this in a wilderness prayer. He says this, And whenever the Ark set out, Moses said, Arise, O Lord, and let your enemies be scattered, and let those who hate you flee before you. Do you see this? That when the Ark moves, Moses said, The Lord is moving. And then at the end, verse 36, he says, and when it rested, that's the ark, he said, return, O Lord, to the ten thousands, thousands of Israel. And so when the ark stops moving, may the Lord then be in our presence and in the center of our midst. Where the ark is, is where the presence of the Lord is. They were so closely aligned, both in God's view and in the view of the Israelite. The ark represented nothing less than being in the very presence of God with his people. It is no good that such a thing, what we see here in the context of Second Samuel and of Samuel in general, that the ark is in someone's basement. That's essentially where it's been for some 30, 40, perhaps up to 70 years. If you remember in the early part of First Samuel, that they take the ark out as kind of a good luck charm out into battle, and God says, no, 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 no. My ark and my presence will not be used as your good luck charm and for your personal glory. And so he allows the ark to be taken into the hands of the Philistines. And there's a couple of instances where because the Philistines didn't know how to utilize or even treat the ark rightly, we see that they die in its presence because it represents God's presence and his holiness. But we see that the ark has been neglected for many years. Under the kingship of Saul, God's presence, this tells you how bad it was for Israel. Under Saul's kingships, God's presence is neglected. And, but David says, no, 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 we need the presence of God. And so he takes not just a few men to go pick it up. He doesn't send a, a, a a U-Haul with a few guys who can, two guys in a van who can move the ark. He he calls up his best soldiers, 30,000 to pick up the ark. And by bringing the ark to Zion, to Jerusalem, what David is saying is that Yahweh's presence cannot remain on the sidelines. That the core of my life, and not just my life, but at the core of the reality of Israel is we need God in our midst. The worship of Yahweh, the ruling of Yahweh, the presence of Yahweh, that must be at the heart of Israel's life. That's what they're supposed to be about as a people. When Pastor Tim Keller says this about the ark, he said, To bring the ark of the covenant to the capital, to Jerusalem, was to put, in a sense, God's worship at the very center of the national life, at the very center of David's life. You see, most kings of that day, what they would say is, I'm the center. Make, Throw a party for me as I become your king. But what David says as he becomes the king is, no, 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 I will not be the center. What we need, more than anything else, is we need the presence of the king, of the Yahweh, of our Lord. In fact, David calls himself not the king here, but what? The prince. That he is second. That God's presence must be central. David says, i in other words, what he's saying is, I have to have God. I have to have God. That I need God's presence in my life. David understands this, and we see it throughout the Psalms. He says, the one thing that I need, that if I'm going to lead these people rightly, if we're going to worship rightly, if we're going to be blessed as a people, then we need one thing, and that is to have the presence of God with us. David says it in Psalm chapter 27, verse verse 4, right? He says, I ask for one thing of the Lord. One thing, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. Psalm 26 says the same thing. He says, I love the habitation of your house, the place where your glory dwells. David knew there was one thing he needed, the presence of of God. And so he says, go get the ark. Bring me the ark. And so the question for us this morning as we begin is we must begin here. There's other things that we must look at at this text and move on. But this is foundational. Is the presence of God, have you come to a place where the worship of God needs to be central to your life? Or you say, without God's presence, my life is nothing. That he will be the center of my life. God says, those who draw near to me, I will draw near to them. That is his promise. That is the first step to learning how to have joyous worship like David had. You have to need to see that God is the one you most need. That the worship of him needs to be at the center of your life. And many of you are there. You've been there. You're a believer. And so you say, yes, God is my king. God is at the center of my life. And yet you still find that your worship is stale. It is cold. So you need to go deeper. In order to become a joyous worship, then we must move on to the second thing, which is this. You must tremble for the holiness of the Lord. Not only must you begin to seek the Lord in His presence as paramount in your life to making Him central, but second, as you do so, you must rapidly come to a place where you come to tremble before the presence of the holy God. Now here's the scene, right? 30,000 men. That's just the men. There's many others, dancers and singers and people, priests and Levites who probably come along on this journey. This is a stadium full of people that are traveling down and picking up the ark and bringing it back to, to Jerusalem. They're singing, they're dancing, there is a huge clash and symbol of great music. There is pomp and circumstance because the ark, the God's presence is being brought to Jerusalem. And then Uzzah, poor Uzzah. For Uzzah, he's just walking behind the ark, then oxen stumbles and Uzzah sticks his hand out and steadies the ark, and bam, God's wrath is poured out. Uzzah drops dead. We don't know what perhaps what he looked like. Maybe he is a shrieking man on the ground. Perhaps he is simply a smoldering wick. Perhaps he lays dead silent with no evidence of anything having happened to him other than the fact that he has no breath and no pulse. But it puts an end to the party. That's for sure. Stop the music, screech the record, the wailing begins, and the people scatter. This is enormous. Colossal buzzkill! To suddenly have God killing somebody in the midst of the party, and for those of us who we look at this, and for particularly us Westerners who love God's the idea of God's presence, who talk about God's grace and His mercy, who particularly as us who are New Covenant believers, who think about how easy it is to access God's presence, this offends us. This offends us, right? Us was only trying to help. I mean. Just sticking his hand out there. This is such a small thing. Aren't you allowed to at least help when the oxen stumble? See, actually, just as a side note, this passage, I think, points to the fact that this this document, it's called the Scriptures, cannot simply be made up by man. Because no mere man would make this up. Because none of us want a God like this. None of us want a God who, if we, if we fl- cross the line in this small little way, with all of our best intentions, we wouldn't invent a God like this. He's not very marketable. There's the God. If you come near Him, if you touch even a symbol of His presence, you are struck dead. How do we make sense of this? How do we make sense of this? Well, there's an important lesson here that is actually that we need to understand that helps us make sense of this, but will also fuel right worship. And it's this truth that runs throughout the scripture is there is an insurmountable gap between us and God there's an insurmountable gap between us and God there's a gap there's two parts of of why there's a gap there's a gap because of who you and I are and here we get to kind of what's going on here in regards to Uzzah we we have a gap between us and God because we are lawbreakers now we look at this and we think man this is just a rash kind of explosive display of God's anger maybe he just had a bad day but it's not that God has actually been quite merciful. And God has made it quite clear. We have to understand why God gives us laws. God gave them laws. And there were three laws in regards to the ark. And they were this. One, when it's being moved, you cover it. Nobody gets to look at it. Two, it is only to be carried by Levites. And not only just Levites, but a particular clan of the Levites. And it had to be carried on poles. And three, no one, and we do mean no one, touches the ark. These rules were made clear Quite a few times in God's law. And what we see here is they broke the rules. All three of them. And this probably wasn't even the first time that day that they broke the rules. They had to get the ark, the ark onto the cart. They, it has been going on for quite some time with the ark without it being covered. And what we see is that they are all violating the rules. And yet God has been gracious, and God has been patient, and God has been kind. And yet what we see here is eventually God says, I have made it clear what my law is, and you have violated it over and over and over again. And yes, there is a time where my anger will burn against you. So there is a gap because we are lawbreakers, but it goes beyond that. It goes beyond that. You see, the whole reason why there's the law there to begin with is because God, God, God understands that there is actually an inherent gap between us and the holy God. And he actually puts these laws up there in order to protect us, because there is actually a deeper principle than simply you have to follow these three rules in regards to the ark. And the the principle is this: is that we are not just people who sin, but we are sinners. That we don't simply are not a people who do bad things. That we are actually bad people, and therefore cannot be in the presence of a holy God. In other words, we are not sinners. We are not. We not. We don't defile the ark with our sin, but we are actually defilers. For us to touch the ark, we defile something that is holy. When Uzzah saw the ark falling, he thought this: that he would defile God if it touched the ground, not realizing far more. But that ark would be defiled if it touched him. You see, what Uzzah and what Israel fails to see here is that they have no concept just how serious their sins are, their law-breaking is, but more than that, just how serious their sinfulness is. How depraved and how defiled they are in their person. To not realize how sinful you are is deadly. It's deadly. You need to recognize that the problem is you. So that's one side of why there's a gap, but there's another side. And the other side is this. You need to see that it's not just who you are, but more importantly, it's about who God is. It's about who God is. And what is being communicated here, and the reason why there has to be separation between man and God, and why there are laws here to keep separate man and God, is because we have a holy God. We have a holy God. And we have forgotten the holiness of God. God. And our forms of worship today, our worship is often like experiencing real-life adventures at a theme park. That's what we want our worship today to be. And here's what I mean by this. Uh, my family and I, we went to um, uh, uh, the, the, the theme park at Disney World. It's all about the zoo. It's about animals. It's about kind of African safari. And we all, we love those. I love Disney World for that, right? Where you can go on space mountain, you mountain. You can space travel except in safety. You can experience the rush without also, also knowing you're not going to die. You can experience in Epcot a, a, a ride in which it simulates what it's like to go up in a space shuttle and in which you can sit in a space shuttle and experience all the force of weight against your body and go, it's nice, but I also know I'm not going to die. I can go on a safari where I'm going to see lions and tigers and bears, oh my, but I can know that there's an electric fence between me and them. And that's really great, in which I can have the thrill of seeing the animals and yet know that I'm not going to be destroyed by their power. This is what we have in worship today. See, I think we have lived much of our life like the Disney version of God's, the Disney version of the worship. We have a non-scary God. We have a consumable God who has been put into this package where we kind of talk about the holiness of God, but it's kind of this very distant thing, and it's behind a fence, and really there's this nice separation between us and God's wrath. This passage destroys the Disney World version of God. This cartoon depiction of our experience of God. This God is not a God behind a fence. He is dangerous, and He is real, and He is eternal. And what is, how does the Scriptures describe Him over and over and over again in the Old Testament? God is holy, holy, holy. If there is one attribute and one character of God that is more prominent than any other, it is God's holiness. It is the only description of God that is thrice repeated. Meaning meaning it is bold, italicized, and underlined is what it means. Deuteronomy 4 verse 24 says this, For the Lord your God is a consuming fire. We look at this passage today in 2 Samuel 6 and we cringe. And we think about this, we go, oh my goodness. If there is somebody who doesn't know the Lord in here, this is really... This is really going to set them off, And I need to be prepared to talk to them afterwards about how this was the Old Testament God. This was the Old Testament God. But the God of the gospel is actually quite the same as the God of 2 Samuel chapter 6. Because if you look at the cross, the cross is a bloody affair. In Acts chapter 5, there's these two people called Ananias and Sapphira, and they lie. And so God strikes them dead in church. In Revelation chapter 1, Jesus is described this way. And he's described by a guy named John, who is described as the disciple whom Jesus loved. And it actually, the intimacy between John and Jesus is talked about like this, that John would say he would lay in Jesus' bosom. That's the intimacy between these two. And yet here's how John describes Jesus in Revelation chapter 1, verses 12-17. through 17. In his right hand he held seven stars, and from his mouth came a two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun, shining in full strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. That's your New Testament, God. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 31 said, It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. The holiness of God. And what we have here, in regards to worship, In this scene with Uzzah, it is a relationally altering moment for the worshipers of Israel and for the lead worshiper, David. In my day of dating, we had this thing called the DTR. I'm not sure if we still have it anymore. It was called the Define the Relationship Talk. This is the Define the Relationship Moment. You ever had a Define the Relationship Moment with some? You can have a Define the Relationship Moment and perhaps talk with somebody other than a hopeful, romantic person in your life. I remember there was a case where my dad defined the relationship rather clearly. It was one day, I was about 16 or 17, I was thinking I was pretty, pretty hot stuff. I thought I was, my dad, my parents were giving me lots of responsibility. I had become a soccer mom. I had become the third parent in the household. I thought I could tell my sisters what they, what they were supposed to do, and I, I could treat them any way I wanted. And one day, my youngest sister hacked me off something fierce, And so across the room, I spit at her. And let me tell you something. My dad redefined the relationship. (laughs) There was an immediate grabbing and throwing out of the house. And he said this, never, never treat one of my daughters that way. And he kicked me out of the house for the rest of the night. I had to go find some place to sleep. What he's saying is this, is you have treated something I love and I value casually. God is having a DTR with Israel. I am holy, and you will not treat me casually. You see, we tend to think of God as small in the way we've described him now. Alvin Plantica, who's a philosopher, says this about our modern way of thinking about God is he says this, we don't tremble at God because we think of God as a smothering parent. We don't tremble at God because we think of Him as an aging grandfather. grandfather, And you don't tremble at an aging grandfather. We picture him as a harassed stock exchange buyer trying to handle all of our incoming prayers. We find him to be a blight and a drag on our fun and games. He is an old-fashioned person, and you don't tremble at an old-fashioned person who is trying to hold you back. Our ideas are pitched and little, and we have forgotten how incomprehensibly great he is. To us, he is nothing. This is the God, though, who numbers the galaxies and the hairs on your head. Do we understand who we're dealing with when we come into worship on a daily basis? When we come into worship on a Sunday morning? Who are we dealing with? You see, in the South, we, have, we are so familiar with God because we know a few things about Him that we've actually become casual in front of Him. We think of Him as, man, like seeing the lions and the tigers and bears at Disney World. We have cargo shorts on and a polo. And this is how we view we can come before God in this way. I heard the story this week about about a person who went to New Mexico and he was out running and he was out jogging and, um, and he came around a particular corner on a street and as he came around the corner, about 20 to 30 feet in front of him stood two mountain lions and he said he froze, which is the right thing to do. And then very slowly and very quietly inched his way back. And he said once he got back around the corner where he was no longer in eyesight of the mountain lions, he ran like a scared little kid all the way home. What had happened? It was as if someone had taken him to the zoo and dropped him behind the enclosements. Now there's no wall. It's just you and the mountain lion. God is that way. God is wild. And you have been dropped. When you come into worship, when you come into the presence of God, you need to recognize this, that you've been dropped behind the enclosure. And that is dangerous. That is dangerous. Have you ever trembled at the presence of God? Jerry Bridges said this, There are some hundred billion galaxies, and in each galaxy there are some hundred billion stars. And yet it says this in Psalm 146 verse 4, that the Lord determines the number of the stars and He has named each of them. It is that God to whom you come to worship. It is that God that you would dare to say, I get to be in His presence. The application of this text is there. You dare not trifle with this God. He is both real and He is holy. Yahweh is not your sweet, warm, little fuzzy friend. He is holy. And this is fundamental and what we see here is that your sin and more than that, your sinfulness separates you from a holy God. He, when you come into the presence of a holy God, someone's going to get consumed. And let me tell you something, it ain't him. He is a consuming fire. It will be you. And David sees this. And David recognizes this. And so in verse 9, David has the right response. What's it say? David is afraid of the Lord. And he said, I cannot bear we cannot have this Lord come into Jerusalem. He says, how can the ark of the Lord come to me? How can the ark of the Lord come into Zion? Because David recognizes this, that David knows I am a sinful man and I am a corrupt man. How can I ever come into the presence of God? How can I ever have God in my household? How can I have God near me? He asks this question in Psalm 24. Who can ascend the hill of the Lord? One who has clean hands and a pure heart. And David goes, "Uh uh-oh, because that ain't me. No one can ascend to the hill of the Lord. No one can be in God's presence. He's saying, in other words, what I want the most is the Lord's presence. That's what I need more than anything else. But how can I get God's presence when it will kill me? Third point to growing in joyous worship is this. You must then experience the mercy of the Lord's. It's a strange thing that happens, so the party ends, the records scratch, everyone kind of, the ambulance guys come in sh- and shuttle off poor Uzzah and his dead body, and everyone just kind of filters away and goes home. And it's, we're left with going, okay, we have an ark that kills people. And they're actually remembering back, oh, wait a second, in fact, this happens over and over again in the Old Testament, the people who treat the ark flippantly die and so they go, you know what, we've got we to do something with this. And so they're going, oh, there's Obed-Edom's house. He's from Gath. Let's put it there. This is like saying, we have a toxic waste dump. What do we do with it? Let's put it over there next to those poor people. They won't know. Let's see how long Obed-Edom and his family lives. And yet something shocking happens. The ark goes to Obed-Edom. And it says in verse 11 and the verse 12, it is the turning point of the whole text. It says that the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite, he's a Gentile. He's a Philistine from Gath, is thriving because of the ark. These foreigners, these people who perhaps don't even know God, they don't even serve God, they weren't even necessarily believers or trusters in Yahweh, and yet God, His presence, allows them to prosper. And there is what we see here is that there is not just God's holiness of the ark in His presence, but there is His presence brings mercy and grace. The incident with us has showed David that he is more sinful than he ever dared believe, but then God blesses a Gentile, a Philistine no less, and David goes, Wait a second. Wait a second. Perhaps God is holy, but there is that thing in the middle of the ark that is called the mercy seat. So perhaps God is also gracious. And merciful, and it appears that this time David gets it. You see, he go, goes back and apparently reads the manual. He reads the instructions on what you're supposed to do with the ark. He rereads how the ark is to be transported. And so, what do they do? They go back after he realizes the blessings of Obed Edom on Obed Edom, and he says, We must have that in Jerusalem. We must get it here. And so, they cover the ark and they carry it on poles. And then, what do we see? What does David do as they carry, on, carry the ark along? It says, every six steps they sacrifice, which means this. That David, in preparation for bringing the ark, had set up altar after altar all the way from, this, from Obed-Edom's house to Jerusalem. So that along the way, as the ark passed it, there was burnt offerings and burnt sacrifices all along the path. Every six steps. You see, when David reread about the ark and the history of the ark, and read the manual and the writings about the ark, he realized this and learned this again that one could only come into the presence of the ark one time of the year, and that was only one man. The high priest should only come in the presence of the ark during the Yom Kippur, what is called the Day of Atonement. And the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies, the place where the ark resided, and, but the only means by which he was able to do that was, is, get, is get in there, is by days, in fact, a week of sacrifices and ritual cleansings, in which he would be able to then come into the presence of God's. You see, on top of the ark, over the law of God, right? The law of God is inside the ark. The Ten Commandments are placed there. Inside, there is this golden slab called the mercy seat. The Greek word for this, and the Greek version of the Old Testament, is this word, helasterion. It means the place of propitiation, it's the place of mercy. And if the high priest, what he would do is he would take all the sacrificial blood, and he would bring that into the Holy of Holies, and he would sprinkle it upon the mercy seat. And it is only then that he could hear from God. This is an astounding picture of the gospel is what we're getting here. That though you cannot approach God in your own righteousness because you are a sinner condemned and unclean. That's who you are. But if there is a sacrifice for your sin, that God is merciful and by his grace, that that sacrifice opens up the way to God and you are justified. You are right in his presence so that you can stand in the presence of a holy God. There is only one way back to God, and that is through the sacrifice leading you into the mercy seat. You see, the Israelites knew, and what David has now realized again here, is that the only way to come into the presence of the ark is to lay down a sacrifice of bulls and goats that were sprinkled on the mercy seat. You see, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. But what we see in the New Testament Is something not taking God's holiness lightly, but God taking his holiness quite seriously in that what we need is something far more than the blood of bulls and goats. And it says that what we have received in order to come into God's presence. And Hebrews chapter 9 says this, that when Christ appeared as a high priest, he entered once and for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood and goats, but by means of whose blood? His own blood. Eternally securing our redemption, and so I go back to Psalm chapter twenty-four, verse three. David asked the question, and he asked it in Second Samuel chapter six: Who can be in the presence of this God? Who could ascend to the hill of the Lord? We are unclean. When the answer is of the New Testament, is there is one. There is one who has ascended the hill, and it is called Calvary, and he took up a cross. And then he sins into the presence of God. After his resurrection, he ascends into the throne room of God where it says that he is making a, a propitiation for us. It means he has taken his blood into God's presence so that you may be welcome into the presence of God. You may be welcome to the presence of God. Which means this, quite practically. We don't need an ark. We have something far better. Indiana Jones could have and saved himself a whole lot of trouble. Because Jeremiah chapter 3, verses 16 says this, and you think as a good scholar of the Old Testament, he would have understood this and read this someplace. Jeremiah chapter 3, verse 16 says this, and when you have multiplied and been fruitful in the land, this is God talking about his mercy to a people who have been um, unfaithful to him, and how God is going to be faithful. When you have multiplied and been fruitful in the land, in those days, declares the Lord, they shall say, they shall no more say, the ark of the Lord, it shall not come to mind or be remembered or missed. It shall not be made again. Why? because we have something far better than the ark of the Lord. We have Jesus himself. The ark will be pointless, because Jesus dies, and he rips open the veil between us and the holy presence of God. You can dig up the ark, what will you have? A nice artifact. Probably some good gold. But we have something far better. We have Jesus Christ, and he is the meeting place between us and God. Now, Here's how we come back to worship. Here's how you become a joyous worshiper. You must put together the longing for God's presence with the holiness of God and the mercy of God. It is only when these things are put together that you will worship rightly. Who is able to stand before a holy God? We need to sit and dwell and in fact become uncomfortable with 2 Samuel chapter 6 because we have lost our sense of reverence For who God is. When we talk about worship today, we normally talk about how it makes us feel. It's about what we prefer. It's about what is sacred to us. Our time or our money or our feelings. But we have no reverence for God. We've lost our wonder that we are welcome in the presence of God. We've lost the question, who is able to stand before a holy God? And the problem is this, is that when you lose wonder at the holiness of God, you lose wonder at the mercy of God. You see, the reason why some of you have lost your first love and the reason why perhaps worship has become stale and cold and you're thinking, man, I just repeat myself the gospel over and over again but maybe you're only preaching yourself part of the gospel and perhaps you've missed the first part of the truth which is you don't deserve to be in His presence. You've lost the reverence for the presence of God and what our worship, transforms our worship and makes it joyous and makes us dance is when you hold together the wonder of God and the grace of God. When you hold together both the holiness of God and the love of God, if you only experience the holiness of God, here's what will happen. Then you won't want to draw near. God will be always be distant, and you won't want to dance. If, yeah, if only you ever talk about is the love of God, who never, a God who never makes demands on you, then you won't be filled with awe that he actually invites you into his presence. If you think God is only holy and we have to measure up, then that won't move you, right? You'll be scared to move. But if you think God is only loving and that we're saved because God just forgives and accepts anyone, then you won't see the cost of what it took to welcome you back into his presence. Love is costly. And without the holiness of God, you will not see the cost of his love and the cost of his mercy. Only in holding these things together will right worship occur. What we have here in the holiness of God is a holy God who is far more than moralists can bear. And we have in God a loving God who is more than relativists and antinomians, those who don't care about keeping the law of God, could ever realize. Because of his love, there is grace. And because of his holiness, his grace is costly. And we see the effect of this realization on David's worship, don't we? How does David's worship? With reckless abandon. With dancing. In 2 Samuel 6, verse 4, it says, And David danced before the Lord with all his might. But we see again in verse 16 what happens. There are those who are looking onward. it's Michael. And Michael's really kind of ticked off about this because Michael has a moralist kind of view about coming to the presence of God. She says this. She's really angry with David. She, she's there to hold the line. She, remember, she comes from a royal family. She knows how kings are supposed to act. We have a certain amount of decorum here, she says. And you are not following the decorum. What she's saying is the king has to comport himself, and what you have done in dancing in this way is you have acted shamefully in an undignified way. And she's particularly angry. Why? Because he has done it. David has done it in the presence of his servants. This is not what a king does. She's saying, David, you're above this. You're above them. Now, there's a couple of things to see in David's response. He says this. First, his response is this: I served. I danced before the Lord who put me on the throne above your family now this seems rather vindictive doesn't it it's like pfft, well your family's nothing that's not what he's saying that's not what he's saying what he's saying is this is David saying i was lowly i wasn't great i wasn't dignified and yet he says god chose me i was not of the royal line i was not something great i should not have been chosen I should not be in this position, but I will dance because of God's grace. Because it's by God's grace that he chose me. And it's only his grace. And the second thing David shows is this, that ultimately who he dances before is not other people, but it's before God himself. You see, Michael is so angry because David will dance in front of the servants, and David says, no, 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 you forget something. You forget who the real servant is here. There is a king, and I am not him. I will be the servant. And therefore, the king can ask anything of me. And therefore, if it means dancing in, an, in a man dress, a linen ephod, then I will dance in a man dress. If it means serving the broken, then I will dance in that way. And I will serve the broken. I will become undignified. I will become something shameful. See, because David had recognized this, that his, his presence in, with God. Is only by grace, and therefore he must live to, as God's servant all of his days. It's when you realize that that you begin to worship rightly. And you begin to, to worship in the paradox of what it says in Psalm 2. Psalm 2 says this, that what, the worship that we need to have, when you come face to face with the holiness of God and the mercy of God, it says you worship with rejoicing and trembling. Joyous worship comes with joy, rejoicing and trembling and trembling that's right worship that's right worship i hope you experience it let's go to the table gracious heavenly father we thank you that you would welcome us into your presence and yet lord what i ask this morning is that you would strike us anew with the awe of that That, Lord, you would put the amazing back into grace by revealing the holiness and the power and the might of who you are. That, Lord, mercy and grace would be so amazing to us because of whom we receive it from. So, God, show yourself mighty. Show yourself holy. Make us low. Lord, would we we not just say it Because it's the right things for Christians to say, to say, woe is me, I am undone. Oh Lord, would we not take the the experience of coming to awe at Your presence and just use it as a cliche. But Lord, would we actually come to a place of awe at Your holiness. And so Lord, we now come to Your presence and to Your table. But Lord, not only do we get to come into Your presence with worship, but then You invite us to a feast with you, to a meal with you. And Lord, may it amaze us once again how that is, how that is possible. That is possible as we take this bread and remember that it was Christ's body that was broken. He was the lamb that was broken. And he is the lamb who had his blood shed to wash us clean so that we could come into your presence. We come to celebrate that and we set aside this simple bread and this simple cup. May you, May you do something mighty. May your grace be poured out to us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.